0: We welcome him up. Father God, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for each person that comes came through the door this morning, and we know we are not here by accident. We are here because you have something for us. And so I just pray that you would prepare our hearts as Tim opens the scriptures to hear your word um, for our lives this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>
1: be a con artist take some serious intestinal fortitude. Maybe you've not seen the movie Zootopia, um, but I want to show a clip of a hustle going down. Now, this scene you will see the fox, Nick Wilde, obtaining a giant popsicle. So, let's take a look.
2: Listen, I don't know what you're doing skulking around during daylight hours, but I don't want any trouble in here. So hit the road. I'm not looking for any trouble either, sir. I simply want to buy a jumbo pop for my little boy. You want the red or the blue, pal? Come on, kid, back up. Listen, buddy, what? There aren't any Fox ice cream joints in your part of town? Uh, no, no, there are. There are. It's just my boy, this goofy little stinker, he loves all things elephant, wants to be one when he grows up. (coughs) Is that adorable? Who the heck am I to crush his little dreams, huh? Right? Look, you probably can't read Fox, but the sign says, We reserve the right to refuse service to anyone so beat it you're holding up the line (laughs) hello excuse me hey you're gonna have to wait your turn like everyone else meter maid actually i'm an officer just had a quick question are your customers aware they're getting snot and mucus with their cookies and cream (laughs) what are you talking about well I don't want to cause you any trouble, but I believe scooping ice cream with an ungloved trunk is a Class 3 health code violation. Which is kind of a big deal. Of course, I could let you off with a warning if you were to glove those trunks and, I don't know, finish selling this nice dad and his son a... What was it? A jumbo pop. Please. A jumbo pop. (sighs) Fifteen dollars. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? I don't have my wallet. (laughs) I'd lose my head if it weren't attached to my neck. That's the truth. Oh, boy. I'm sorry, pal. Got to be about the worst birthday ever. Please don't be mad at me. Thanks anyway.
0: Keep the change.
2: Officer, I can't thank you enough. So
1: kind. Really. So that scene goes on where they melt the big popsicle down and then refreeze it into tiny little popsicles and sell them to lemmings. So the hustle. You know, it takes a huge amount of projected confidence into a situation. When you're a con artist and you know you're doing something wrong, and you just have to project your confidence in that moment. You know, and most of us non-con artists um, have some tells some leaks that happen when we are doing something we know isn't quite on the up and up. I was reading about confidence, and this one article wrote about the tell that we have that gives us away, that when we're not very confident about something, we use a ton of words. We just talk a lot and just go on and on. But when we're confident about something, we use very few words and really succinct And you can imagine this very simple example of a lady looking through her purse, trying to find her keys, and just all the self-talk of words that happen of, you know, I know I put these in here somewhere, you know, every time I lock the door, I always put them right back here, keys, keys, where are you? Just a lot of words happening, right? Until when you have the keys in hand, what does she say then? Oh, there they are, simple, succinct. And I know that for some of us, a lot of words is easier than others, and for some of us, less words is easier than others. But it's interesting, this tell, that we can leak out our confidence. You know, and it doesn't have to be when we're a con artist doing this. It's just these areas where we want to project what we want to be true about ourselves, rather than what is actually true. And sometimes we can get away with it, and other times we get caught talking too much and people becoming suspicious rather than believing us. Well, this morning, we're talking about the confidence paradox, um, looking at the story of a con artist in Scripture, the life of Jacob. And Jacob actually did his first hustle in the womb. Isaac, Rebecca were his parents, and uh, actually they were married for 20 years. And for 20 years, they were praying that God would give them a child. And through their prayers, God did answer and respond and gave them a child. Actually, two. Two twin boys. And that's where the first attempt of a hustle began. You can just imagine a little fetus Jacob in the womb looking over and he sees his brother Esau. And he's like, that guy is closer to the exit than I am. He is going to get out first. And as a result, he's going to get the inheritance, he's going to get the birthright, he's going to get the blessing, he's going to be the favorite of dad, and I am not. I'm going to be second place. So, Jacob, thinking that he has to take matters into his own hands, thinking that I can't trust mom or the universe or whatever out there is in charge of these things, I have to take matters into my own hands. I have to look out for myself. So his little plan was that he was going to grab his brother's heel. And when he started to go out the door, Jacob was going to pull him back and go out and get out first. That was the first hustle. That was the first attempt. But if you know the story, you know that it didn't work. Esau did make it out first. You know, there was a lot of jostling in Rebekah's stomach, as the story says, as Jacob's trying to work his hustle. But. He doesn't get out first. And in fact, the story says that Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel as he came out in second place. And that became his identity, that he is second place. And he just took on this idea in his head that I'm not enough. I'm in second, and there's nothing for me. So now I'm really going to have to take matters into my own hands because no one is going to give me anything. I need to do it for me. take care of me. So as kids, we see Jacob tricking Esau so that Esau would sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. As crazy as that may sound, that is the story. And an even crazier story is when their mother, Rebecca, gets involved at the end of Isaac's life, when Isaac is going to give the family blessing. and Usually that goes to the eldest son. But Rebecca sneaks in and says, okay, let's trick it up here, and let's get you in and receive that blessing. I remember as a kid hearing the story and just thinking, this is crazy. But you can imagine the scene where Isaac can't see very well or hear very well. And so Rebecca dresses up Jacob in Esau's clothing so he'd smell like Esau. And they, they put goat skin on his arms and on his neck so that when Isaac touched him, he would feel the fur. And just think how furry Esau was, for that to be true. It's crazy. But they go in, and Jacob goes in to Isaac and pretends to be Esau. And Isaac believes him and gives him the blessing, the family blessing. And then Esau comes in, and he is mad because he got cut out of the deal. He got hustled. Well, the lesson that Jacob was born with, perhaps, and for sure he learned from his mom, was that if you can't get what you want by being who you are, maybe you can get what you want by pretending to be someone else. That's the lesson that he learned, that if you can't get what you want by being who you really are, maybe you can get it by by pretending to be who you're not. Isn't that the root of the self-confidence lie? That functioning true and false source, that right there is the lie. The lie that says, you're not enough, and you need to pretend to be somebody else. You need to pretend to be something different, pretend to be something more, pretend that didn't happen in the past, pretend, pretend, pretend. And this is the question for us this morning. What are we pretending at? What are you pretending at? You know, if we were going to pull back the curtain of your life this morning, what would we find back there? The things where you are projecting an image differently, or maybe the things that you're trying to hide and not be seen. But what are you projecting to the world around you? In this high-tech world that we live in, it's easy to project an image different than who you really are. You can put out to the world this image of who you want to be instead of who you really are. And you can hide the things that you are ashamed of. You don't want to be seen. You can tuck those away. You know, back in high school, I had a, you know, one of those flip calendars, I had a quote every day for every day of the year, and I actually kept one of those quotes for a long time and still remember it today. The quote said, to wish you were someone else is to waste the person that you are. You know, to wish that you were someone else is to waste the person that you are. And isn't that the root of it? That... The person that you are because God made you and designed you and created you with purpose and intent and design. To not live that out is to waste the person that God created you to be. And so it is in these places of weakness, in these places of things we want to hide, those are the things actually where God can connect with us. The places where God actually can only connect with us, because there's room for him in our lives. And even more, it's those places of weakness, those things perhaps that we want to hide away and are embarrassed of, those things, when they are opened up to the world, are actually a gift to the world. So God says to us, stop pretending. Stop pretending because you are enough. You are enough because I made you enough. And that's the lesson that Jacob needed to learn as well. You can just think about Jacob starting life, thinking that it's all about him. He's got to grab it, take a hold of it, make it his own because no one is going to give him anything. And that's the story that he is thinking and living out. But at the same time, God has a different plan. You know, at the same time, when he is in the womb doing his hustle, here's what God said about him to his mother, Rebecca. God said, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. See that? God has a different plan for Jacob. God is going to, like, turn over the patriarchal family order in order to do something different and unique. He's going to choose Jacob the second place over the normal first place, firstborn son. And that's the story That God is now writing in Jacob's life. When you think about Jacob, you know, we're not that interested in his deceptions, his cons, his trickery. We are way more interested in those moments where God intervenes into his story. Those moments where God moves him from self-confidence and the things he's doing on his own strength and moves him to a God-confidence. That's the story of Jacob that we're interested in. And aren't we also looking for God to show up like that in our own stories? You know, wherever you are, whoever you are, you know, whatever seemingly ordinary things are happening in your days, those are the moments that can be extraordinary. Extraordinary not because of something you do or something of your own ability or strength or accomplishment, but extraordinary because God is doing it with you. That's the power of God intervening into our story. You know, and that's what God invited Jacob into, something different, you know, to set aside being a con artist, trying to grab and get a hold of what he could for himself, and instead to move his confidence into God. And moving his confidence over to God where he has authority, Where he can act in this world and do things. And God is going to do something through him. And all the same, being a human that is vulnerable, still working out his own failings and problems, but it's the fact that God is involved in his life that makes a difference. So the confidence paradox is this setting aside self-confidence in order to place our confidence in God. And that's what Jacob had to do in his story, to learn that lesson. To not grab for himself, but instead to trust God. And isn't that each of our stories? You think about your own story of, okay, it's about me. I've got to take hold of it. I've got to make it happen. I've got to defend me. I've got to protect me. I've got to make it happen for me. And it feels like it's all about you. When God is inviting us to say, nope, nope. I am looking to you, God, and you can take care of those details. And that's where God intersects our story. When we are feeling weak, then he can move in with strength. When we put our allegiance into God, that's the turning point in our story. Turning away from our own self-effort into trusting God. You know, this confidence paradox is really about living in two possible realities. You know, you can live in the self-confident reality that you create or you can live in the God-confident reality that is a source in God now my three-year-old Lila, my daughter Lila is mesmerized right now by mermaids and I don't know if you haven't seen the movie Zootopia you may not know that there are mermaids living here in Denver, you can go down to the Denver Aquarium and see the mermaids swimming around with the fish and Lila loves it She's mesmerized by it. She's amazed by it. So much so that she wants to pretend to be a mermaid. So, whenever we go swimming, Lila wants to pretend to be a mermaid. And she says, OK, I'm the mermaid. You be the scuba diver. And then she just calls me scuba diver all the time. She's says, scuba diver. And the reality for Lila is that what do you think happens when Lila puts her face underwater? She's got to come back up for air. Lila is not a mermaid. She has to breathe air. Even though she wants to pretend, the reality is she is not a mermaid. And the imaginary world of mermaids is somewhat like our self-confident worlds we create. You know, that self-confidence tells us, oh, if you don't like who you are, you can be somebody else. Just pretend to be somebody else. Self-confidence says, oh, yeah, you want to live under the sea Swim at the fish, sure, you can do that. Just take a huge gulp of breath and you'll be fine. But what's the reality? Lila has to come back up for air. Now, Lila can really be committed to being a mermaid. She can like practice holding her breath for a really long time. And I'm sure she'll get up to like three minutes, right? That she'll be able to hold her breath and stay underwater by her effort of training. But what's the reality? She's going to have to come back up for air eventually. Or, you know, Lila could bring her scuba diver along who could just give her a puff of air through the air tank and keep her down underwater for a little longer. But again, the reality is that she has to come up for air. You know, underwater is simply not Lila's reality. Just like self-confidence is not our reality. You know, sure, we can pretend to be somebody else. We can project what we want to project. But at the end of the day, we are who we are, and God has made us to be who we are and to live in his reality, putting our confidence in him, accepting ourselves, and then moving forward with God, breathing his oxygen. You know, God confidence is a different reality. It's just a different reality. You think about God confidence is still based on a feeling, and that can change and waver. But the source for our self-confidence is God. And God is strong and secure. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can put our confidence in him. And our access into God as our source of confidence is through our weakness. You know, we self-confidence over here is trying to build this world for us by our own strength. God-confidence says be weak. Accept your weakness, acknowledge it, see it. And that is the place then where God can join you and be strong. That's the place where God's strength is available to you. And that's the paradox. That's the paradox Paul wrote about when he wrote that, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I am strong. Author Andy Crouch wrote, I think, an excellent little book called Strong and Weak, in which he expands on this idea of the confidence paradox. And he says, you know, that often when we think about strong and weak, we put it on a single continuum. You know, you put weakness over here on one end and strength over there on the other end, and your goal in life is just to move towards strength and get as far away from weakness as you can get. But he goes on to say that that's not reality. The reality is that weakness has its own continuum. Strength has its own continuum. That you can be high in authority or low in authority. You can be high in weakness or low in weakness. And so he puts these two continuums together to create this two-by-two chart. He says, look, at these are the different ways you can balance out your life, the ways you can put strength and weakness together, the way you can put authority and weakness together in your life. You know, authority, he says, is the capacity for meaningful action. Capacity for meaningful action. You know, that means that what you do or don't do impacts the world around you, that you have that capacity. So you think about a plumber. A plumber has authority over pipes. You know, a plumber knows how to keep the water in and to make all that work. You think about a skier. You know, somebody skiing down the mountain. They have authority over the mountain when they are going down the mountain, mastering that. Or you think about a successful business person. You know, that person's, like, authority precedes them wherever they go. You know, they walk into a room and people know his name and they are influenced by him because of his res- the respect and authority that he has. So, authority is this capacity for meaningful action and vulnerability is the exposure to meaningful risk. You know, often you think about meaningful risk, think about people in poverty. You know, somebody who In their situation, they don't have the capacity to do something about it, to make that different, to change that, to end that, to move in a different direction. You know, and to be vulnerable means that you can risk something that has real value. And maybe it's even irreplaceable value. So not only people in poverty, but you think about that successful business person has the potential for vulnerability. Because the business person can lend his authority to somebody else by giving him a good word. Or he can kind of come alongside a project and support it. And by putting his authority out there, he's risking his own reputation. He's risking something about himself. And so that's the challenge of our balancing our authority and our vulnerability. I know this is going to be quick, but... Andy goes through these four quadrants, looking at the way we can balance these things out. He says, up in quadrant four, you have people with high authority and low vulnerability. He says, calls that exploiting. You know, this is a group of people who are bullies, who are gathering and using their authority for themselves and are hurting others by their doing that. And I think we can look around at the world and look at the list of nations that have tyrant leaders who are just using their authority to gather and amass riches for themselves while their people languish in poverty. And those are the people in quadrant two, suffering. The people in poverty, the people who have low authority and high vulnerability. They don't have the resources to take action to change the situation for themselves. So, you think about a family in Sudan right now, and just the vulnerability they are in, that they don't have the opportunity to do something to get out of that situation, to feed themselves, to find safety, they are suffering. But then we have this third quadrant, withdrawing. This is where somebody has low authority, low vulnerability. You know, somebody, as Andy Crouch says, who's kind of wrapping their life in bubble wrap so that nothing can hurt them, nothing can bump into them and damage them. You can think about these people who are withdrawing. They might have a little bit of authority, but they're trying to protect it and keep it. They're not going to risk it because they don't want to risk losing it. But neither do they want to take a risk out where they can expand it. They're just kind of keeping what they have. When I think about this group, this might be harsh, but I think we can look around Denver and see this happening, this withdrawal, where we just say, oh, I just want to have what I have and enjoy these comforts. I want to enjoy the benefits of living in Colorado. You know, I don't want to risk losing any of these things, so I'm not going to put myself out there. I want to keep these for myself. And then the final quadrant, the first quadrant, is flourishing flourishing. These are the people who have high authority and high vulnerability. These are the people who are using their authority to help others who don't have it. These are the people who are humbly living out that balance of having authority, but are using it not just for their own gain, but for the community's gain around them. So many examples I think of people doing this and I hope each of us is an example of how we are using whatever authority we have to apply it out. Last last fall the men's groups, Monday and Wednesday, we read a book about the founder of Project Cure. And just in his story, he was a person with high authority, he achieved a lot of business success in life. He had authority, he was known, he had connections and networks and resources. But he chose not to just use that for himself, for his own gain, to amass more stuff. But instead, he said, ah, I'm going to use my resource, and I'm going to risk it to help others. And so he did the bold move of going to some friends after seeing a need in the world. And he said, hey, friends, I know this is crazy, but would you give me some of your leftover medical supplies, stuff you don't need, so that I can take them and give them to some people who do need it? And he put that risk out there in his own life. He took a meaningful risk in order to help people who didn't have the authority to make that happen for themselves. Well, think about Jacob. Think about Jacob in this chart. You know, he starts out life feeling like he is in that vulnerable situation, that he is suffering. He is in second place. He's got to make it happen for himself because no one is going to take care of him. That's the story he's living out. And he looks over to see his brother with authority, you know, the firstborn who's going to get everything, and he looks over at him and he's like, ah, if only I was him. And we see him pretend to be Esau because he says, you know, I am not Esau. Esau is strong. You know, Esau's the hunter. Esau's dad's favorite. I am the one dad doesn't love. So he's just feeling vulnerable and weak. And the action that he takes is to say, oh, I just need to grab that authority. If I just had more authority, then I wouldn't be vulnerable anymore. So if only I were Esau, if only I had Esau's body, or Esau's wealth, or Esau's gifts, or Esau's personality, then life would be different. And he does. That's the story, that he's reaching out to grab for himself, pretend to be somebody else until God intersects into his story. and says, no, Jacob, you are enough. I created you with a plan and a purpose and a direction and an intent, and I'm going to follow through with that. And that's the awakening for Jacob, for him to set aside his self-confidence and all that effort on his own in order to take hold of his confidence in God in what God was doing and that he could be secure in him. You know, in life, Jacob started out on that hamster wheel, pursuing authority and trying to run away from weakness, pretending to be someone else, until God broke in, changed that up, and said, You are enough. You are valuable just because of who you are, your weaknesses, your strengths, the whole of it all. I'm with you, and we are going to write a story together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to join you. We don't want to run off on our own pursuing the things that we think are going to gain us more in this life. We want to run after you. God, give us the courage to move toward our weaknesses so that you can be strong in us. And God, so that you can do your great work in the world through us, through those weaknesses. God, we have so many resources as citizens of this nation, so much authority. I pray you would help us to think through how we can use our authority to share it with others and to risk that for the greater good. And even more, God, we are citizens of heaven, that we have something that is set and secure in you, that can never be taken away. So why can we not risk it? Help us to risk, to put ourselves out there, to be your light in this world, bringing something only that you can bring. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, Tim. At this time, as we prepare our hearts to come forward to the table, please join me in this community reading. and forgive us, that we may delight in your will, and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his friends in the upper room. He took some bread, and after giving thanks for it, he broke it, and said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, He said, this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of this wine, do so in remembrance of me. So as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we remember the Lord's death until he comes again. Would Brad and Amy and Moira and Tim come forward?